Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to Better Living. I'm your host, Nick Carissimi, continuing our conversation about the Compassion Council for the Dallas Arts District. And we're going to talk about another piece of that here to help me with that is Ainley Hoffland. She is the executive director for the Crow Collection of Asian Art. How are you today? I'm great. Hello. Good to be with you. Well, thank you very much for joining me. All right. So I think the first thing that we should do is really learn about about this collection, about this museum. What is the Crow Collection? Who are you guys? The Crow Collection is the Center for Asian Art and Culture in the Dallas Arts District. It's a free museum, and we are entering our 20th year. So we've been around for a couple of decades exploring how to connect with Asia, what we need to know about Asia, and why it's relevant. Is this the museum that is close to the DMA? It is. We're right in the Arts District across from the Nasher and the DMA. Okay. All right. So I have been there. It's a great awesome. place. It's very interesting. Um, you know, when you say Asian art, it's it's a large swath of culture. Yes. Do you guys have a focus? Our collection spans really Tokyo. I like to say Tokyo to Goa. So Tokyo, Japan to the southern tip of India. The focus, though, would really be Chinese art. And this is the culmination of a family that is well-known in Dallas, Trammell and Margaret Crow, who collected Asian art for over 40 years. And then in 1998, it became a museum. But what has happened since then, I think, is a lot more interesting about how we created dialogues and conversations around Asian art and culture, which also includes religion, which is very timely right now. So how do well then how do you guys do that? Do you guys feel it's it's a way to help people in this area understand Asian culture in general? Is it just to focus on the art of Asia? Where are you going with that and what are you trying to do? Right. I think early on we were committed to being a museum different, that it would be a place where people could experience cultures um, in interactive ways, in accessible ways. And, you know, I really think that compassion has a lot to do with this. Um, We studied Tibetan Buddhism. The monks have come every year from the mystical arts of Tibet. And that really led us to an inquiry about uh, what is this art for? So we use the art as the fulcrum, as, as the base of what we study, but the conversations and the humanity around the art are a lot more important to us. I do want to, obviously, we're going to talk more about that. But I would mm-hmm. like to kind of understand just a little bit more about the museum itself. Sure. Because I've always wondered about this. When people start a museum from their personal collection, how does it, how does that transition happen? I mean, do you just accumulate so much art that you're like, <laughs> you know what? Yeah. We should bring this to the masses. That's like, okay. was it in somebody, was a lot of this art in someone's home? For a certain amount of time, or yes. do they collect them in their own private museum type thing? How does that work? It's a great question. So, the Crow Collection of Asian Art that opened in 1998 uh, represented the private collection of Margaret and Trammell Crow, and he loved Asia. From being a young boy, he was always curious about Chinese philosophy and the principles of Asian culture, and he used it as a way to conduct business. So, his purpose in collecting art was 
passion and love, but it was also to have objects that could help him have better relationships with the Chinese, with the Japanese, while they were developing world trade centers in Dallas and China and Japan. So it was really personal, and we opened a museum with a selection of a larger collection. So he was passionate. We had over 8,000 objects that we needed to study as we opened the museum, and we chose 611. So it was tightly edited, the very best of the collection that represented the cultural aspects that we were we felt were important for Dallas to to begin to know and to begin to understand. So you picked six hundred and eleven objects out yep. of eight thousand objects. 000. How long was that? How long did that process take? You know, I would call it Trammel Crow time. It was four months. <laughs> That's so, actually pretty quick, I think, yeah. though, right? We had the best curator in the United States who was selected from the Asian Art Museum of San Francisco, and he called through office towers and warehouses and hotels that were all part of the family companies and the family business to create the museum. And, you know, I think at that moment we opened as a private collection, but very quickly we brought exhibitions to Dallas and installations and artists that created the living arts of Asia. So what's beyond the private collection? And that's where you really get the, the flourishing of the museum. You're, you're saying we a lot. Were you <laughs> a part of this from the beginning? I was. So I was hired about three weeks before we opened. So I was not part of the, the selection of the works, but very quickly was writing content and creating curriculum for teachers who had very little resource in terms of Asian art and culture. When this museum was first started, was there really any access in the Dallas area to Asian art, or at least art of this caliber? I would say absolutely not. Really? Yes. So it was um, a challenge to, immediately we had 30 docents that we were trying to educate about Asian art and culture, and it's so vast, of course, it goes back thousands of years and hundreds of religions and languages. So it's been, it took us a while to work through how to construct knowledge around this. Was there a rhyme or reason to the things that were picked, or was it literally just the best stuff? Because as you're saying, thousands of years of culture, you know, a huge area, very different cultures, mm-hmm. like India to Japan. He, like, you know, how do you do this? Dr. Shangra went with quality. So for the crows, it was important that it was the best of their collection. And that's that's how we created the Crow Collection of Asian Art. And that standard, that quality instinct has stayed with us until today. Amy Hoffland is the executive director of the Crow Collection of Asian Art, their website, crowcollection.org. Uh, what is your background in the arts? I am an educator. So I was um, educated to be a teacher of art and to teach teachers how to um, teach the principles of art, design, and history. And I think that was a perfect complement to what the Crow needed to be um, in our formation. I have a master's degree in museum education and a certificate in technology. And technology has been a mode of access to communities that are not near downtown that can access content about Asia. So it it has been a a journey of learning what does the community need. Um, We like to say that the Asian-American migration to Dallas over the last 20 years, and and that is tremendous. We all know this for the sectors of engineering and technology and has really made Dallas an amazing city. And so how does this collection support greater engagement and greater cultural understanding? Do you think that it, it works as a way to make people feel almost at home if they are from Asia to see these things that, that, 
something that they would feel is familiar or comfortable to them, or even maybe to show their kids who are living here that don't get Mm -hmm. to experience certain aspects of their culture that are so deeply ingrained in them. Yes, we really want to be that resource for families that have moved here and have um, history or heritage that is Asian. And it's a place for people to experience Chinese New Year and the Japanese moon viewing festivals. Community education and programming has been a big part of our work. And that's that's the best aspects of Asian culture. Has it always been built around those philosophies? Because you're, you're making it sound like this was always intended to be a place of education, not necessarily just of viewing art. Yes, absolutely. We he Trammell Crow, who is the son of Margaret and Trammell Crow, said from the very beginning that we would be a museum without walls and that it would be a place where the city would see the crow beyond the five galleries that we have. Is it common for museums to be set up in this way, that if you go to one museum, this is more of an educational museum as opposed to one that is just for viewing an exhibition? Are they set up that way? I I think you'll see a range, of course, and you can kind of study the history, especially with Asian art collections that grow and become amalgamations of other collections. But for museums in today's times, education has become a huge focus because art history, while it's important and um, resourceful, it doesn't engage the visitor in the way that education has to. And we're really looking at museums as the third, one of the third spaces. So you've got home and you've got work or you've got home and school. The third space is the art museum, which is safe. In our case, it's free and it's, it's relevant. And people like to come and stay longer than they might have 20 years ago. You, you have a background in education. You also have a background in technology. A lot of times, you know, nowadays I would say that it's easy for people just to view art and artifacts online and not actually experience them in person. How does this museum show people that it's important to actually be there to take this stuff in in person as opposed to just going about it online? Because you're working both sides of that. Mm-hmm. You know, this museum is good at doing both. Right. I love that question. I think, I think we all know the power of art and the power of experiencing an object. And so what we've heard from people who visited the Crow over the years is that it is an oasis. You know, they'll say, I love coming down from my office in the tower and just visiting the museum and it lowers my blood pressure. It makes me calmer. And I, I know that that is a gift. You know, we believe that the Crow is at the base of Trammell Crow Center and in the Arts District surrounded by four towers for a reason uh, that we we can provide, we call ourselves the antidote to stress. You know, people are in the towers are stressed, they're tired, and life is confusing these days. And if we can provide a 10-minute or a 30-minute experience with a work of art that increases our capacity for compassion and self-reflection, and then we've done our job. I've been to this place, and it does have that very calming, very zen-like mm-hmm. feeling to it. It's very quiet, very serene. Do you, does that feeling come from the art that is on display, or is that how you guys have designed that building and that setup of art? Definitely both. And I think they, they sort of were created from each other. The Crows were very contemplative people, and they knew that these works of art by nature, by history, um, are contemplative objects. Many of them were in temples. Many of them represent different faith traditions. And I think that led to the conversations that were held in 1997 and 1998 to create a museum that feels like home. 
and Mrs. Crow wanted the visitor to be able to come in for free and relax and be treated with this, what we call it compassionate hospitality. And that that's what the Crow is about, is feeling welcome. Is there a lot of learning that goes into not just the culture that this art comes from, but also the religion that is tied to these areas? Because it's, in a lot of cases, very different from what most North Texans are exposed to. You don't right. see a lot of Buddhist temples when you're driving <laughs> around. You might see a lot of Methodist churches, for instance, but you don't necessarily see you know, what we were talking about. So has that been a, a, a big part of what the church is trying to also help people to understand? Right. I think, let, actually, more than religion, I would say it's about being open. So if we can create a conversation about compassion and understanding, then that's what this art is supposed to do in the world. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who is the leader of Tibetan Buddhism, was in Dallas in July of 2015. And because the monks had come across the years, we were familiar with the teachings of Buddhist principles, which are about non-discrimination and love and loving kindness and compassion. And I watched him that day in Dallas through four or five different talks. And I noticed his stand and who he is as a human being is all about compassion. And every time he spoke at the end of the speech, he would walk to the edge of the stage and ask all of us to stand up, whether we were a group of five or 25 at, at lunch or 2,500 in the afternoon at SMU. And he would request that we take a pledge with him to be compassionate, to put more compassion into the world in action. And I just, I was stunned and amazed by how this human being can convey that message so clearly. And so kind of, we came back to the crow that day and I said, this is what we're up to in the world. It's something bigger than ourselves. Uh, The community needs us to be uh, teachers. And we started looking for partners in compassion that we could work with to answer that question. How do we put compassion into action? So this seems to have had a a big impact on you. Did you expect to to have that or was this revelation uh, surprising? Uh, immensely surprising. It was a real awakening for me in terms of where my leadership needs to be in our city. And we started studying compassion as an idea. You know, we, we think we know what compassion is, but do we really know what it means? And we found the work of Dr. Karen Armstrong, who is a scholar in the world's religions. And She studied Buddha, and she studied Muhammad, she studied Jesus, and determined that compassion is the single most important um, life learning that we can have for each other to help with our survival. And, uh, of course, she's worked with His Holiness the Dalai Lama as well, and so we studied that she has come up with a system of cities that are called compassionate cities. And they adopt a charter. It's a beautiful document, the Charter for Compassion. I think the website is charterforcompassion.org. And the charter is four or five paragraphs um, around inclusivity, loving kindness. And um, we looked at, is Dallas a compassionate city? We learned that we're actually not yet um, in terms of signing the charter. Fort Worth is, so we're feeling a little compassion uh, competition there. But um, there is a local chapter of Compassionate DFW here, and I'm on the board for that. And it also brought us to Dr. Andy Stoker at First United Methodist Church. And the Crow Collection staff 
read a new book that had just come out a couple of years ago by Dr. Armstrong called The 12 Steps to a More Compassionate Life. And uh, following that, Dr. Stoker's team over at First Church also read 12 Steps to a More Compassionate Life. And I, you know, I think for a year, uh, 2016 was the year of compassion for our museum and for our staff, really internally. It's, you know, it's so funny. For a year, we studied, and I thought, here's another revelation, I thought that we could learn about compassion and wave a wand and create a museum of compassion. And I was so wrong, because compassion really begins with the self, and self-compassion is an important first step of who am I as a human being? Am I gossiping? You know, who am I as a leader? Am I authentic in my word? Am I true to the integrity that I bring to the office every day? And those are really hard questions to answer. And how are we as a team? Are we a loving team? Are we taking care of each other? Or are we kind of in a mode of threat and um, indignation? So we worked on the team first, and that was a really beautiful process. Uh, worked, and we're still working on the team, and this work never ends. In fact, you can't have a year of compassion because it just goes on forever. Um, so we really worked on the team, and now we're just beginning in our partnership with First Church and with a new organization called the Compassion Council in the Dallas Arts District to explore how to take that commitment from the self to the team to the organization and then out into the world. And that's what we're working on right now. So, you know, that's that's basically my question right now. You said you were attempting to create a museum of compassion. So my understanding of this would be it would almost be the easier thing to only work on the self to try and be a more compassionate person because you can be so in control of that to a certain extent. But to to create a place that is compassionate, does that mean that the the people that work on it are, are attempting to be more compassionate people, and then that radiates from where you're working mm-hmm. from? Or are you attempting to do it in a way that I'm still not understanding? <laughs> you know, it's all about practice. And it, it can be daunting. You know, we thought about it for too long. You know, how do we do this? How do we create a city? Oh, my gosh, this is so hard. And aren't we already compassionate? But um, it really is about that one moment, and it's related to mindfulness. It's that one moment of coming back to the focus of what are the little ways that I'm compassionate throughout the day. And there's some great techniques. We wear bracelets that say compassionate on them, and you turn it when you create a compassionate act. So it's the simple acts of kindness, and we all, we've heard this, but are we really doing it is the question that really changed the brain. We know the brain is plastic. We know the brain can create new patterns that develop into new practices that create new habits. So how do we work with ourselves and with each other in a new accountability for love, which is really a, a wonderful um, gift as a human being? How do we attempt or help to create a more compassionate city? When you think about a compassionate city, what are the hallmarks of that? Right. I think the most important thing I've learned in these three years is to listen and acknowledge the tremendous work that our city has endeavored really since, uh, you could say, since Kennedy's assassination, really you could say since Kennedy's assassination or even before that, that um, there are deep scars in our community 
And listening is the first step. We call it deep listening. We've studied Thich Nhat Hanh uh, this year. And deep listening and loving speech and acknowledging those leaders before us that have been really in this ether of compassion for their entire lives. So listening and looking at partnerships. And that's where First Church has made us stronger as a district and as a community. And that is one of the things I love about working in the Dallas Arts District is the critical mix, the mix of art museums and performance halls, schools, religious organizations, and people. You know, we've always thought of them as corporate office towers, but the human beings in those corporate office towers are the ones that we really need to be thinking about. How did this partnership with First United start with you guys? Because, you know, I it almost it I think that there's a lot of religious institutions uh, in this city that definitely would have been a part of this or would, would have loved to. But it was you guys and it was First United that seemingly got together to really first start this. Was that where the partnership started was with you guys? You know, for years I'd been told you have to meet Andy Stoker. <laughs> and people were, I'm sure they were talking to Andy and they were talking to me and they were seeing some alignment in our vision that uh, our work is bigger than our organizations and that we're, the reasons we're here in the world are to help provide access to others and to ourselves for human connection. And so Andy and I had a couple of conversations. That was all it took. Um, and he was excited about the work and interested to try anything. You know, and I think risk taking and courage are a huge part of this work. The willingness to um, try and fail. You know, we have a weekly call at the Crow about failure. You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of ways to sort of explore how courage can be designed, and compassion is a huge part of that. So Andy and I started talking, and very quickly um, formed this compassion council. We thought, well, we will try. So we sent out invitations to 50 organizations in the Dallas Arts District that already has a beautiful architecture of leadership through the Arts District organization. And 47 people showed up at the first meeting. Amazing. So that was inspiring. And, you know, I've I've been on a lot of committees across the years in the Arts District, and we've never had that high ratio of turnout. So 47 new leaders showed up in our museum for a conversation about compassion, and we took on the book study. So that organization has read the 12 Steps to a More Compassionate Life. And we've also taken on three new projects this year to explore the action. You know, rather than hypothesize or wonder or imagine, we are really putting boots on the ground around this. It seems like action has been how this has been run from the beginning. You said that you heard a speech, and then you were immediately moved to action. You heard the Dalai Lama speak and you were immediately moved to action. You started this and after much reflection and study, as you've mentioned, it, it, you're, you're finally really starting to get this thing moving. So do you feel it, it, it's kind of off on its own and, it, and it's starting to, to run and, and take hold? I do. I do. The great thing about compassion is that everybody says yes. I love that. I've never been involved with a project that had so much affinity. Um, I think people, it's the, I like to say that it's the thing that people are hungry for and they don't know it. You know, they're, they're sort of wondering what's next and what's my role in this world? What's my purpose in this wild and um, amazing life? And so I think that's where the action comes in is that people are ready to create a different story than the ones we're waking up to in the morning on the headlines. 
if somebody is trying to understand how to be a compassionate person or to be a more compassionate person, I was thinking about they would have to be acts, like you are, are physically doing something for someone else. But one of the things that you, you have kept talking about is just the act of listening, mm-hmm. which is which – is, it's an active thing to do it correctly, but it does seem like a kind of a, a passive thing. It doesn't seem like it's so hard to do that, but many people don't do this, and they certainly don't take the time to actually think about doing that. So when when you think about being a compassionate person, it's as simple as listening to someone and caring about what they're saying and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It is. It's it's the gift of, of human interaction and the inter part of that word interaction. The idea that um, we call it watering the flowers. It's a Thich Nhat Hanh phrase and we do it a lot at work and it's around appreciation. So just by listening to someone, you're appreciating their thoughts and you're not, you know, how conscious are you in that listening? Are you really hearing their words or are you thinking of the next thing to say that might be more interesting or more right. I'll put that in quotes. Um, so it's it's really taking the self out of that process of listening and truly being with the other human that you're engaged with. Let's talk about what you guys have coming up. Is there anything on the books that you wanted to discuss? Every Sunday afternoon from 12 to 4, we bring the meditation mats out into the gallery. And this happens in the the gallery that has art from South Asia. So you've already got sort of a a layer of context with the beautiful Mughal facade and works of art from India. And we invite people to sit. We have an instruction card. It's self-guided mindfulness or meditation or prayer. It's as you wish. And we call it Compassion Now. And it's an invitation to really think about our place in the world and what we're up to. So that's every Sunday. And starting in January, we will um, relaunch our wellness classes at The Crow. We've been on hiatus for a year. And so what we have, what we offer is daily wellness and well-being practices, meditation, Tai Chi, Qigong, and yoga. All right. So before we wrap up, I'm going to have to put you on the spot and ask (laughs) you if there is a piece of art at the collection that stands out to you the most or one that you feel is your favorite. And I'm sure you get that. I bet you get that question a lot, (laughs) but I still have to ask. And my work of art changes every time. Well, good. All right. (laughs) Yes. So there is a Sui Dynasty head of Buddha that was a recent gift to the museum. And it's a large work. So it's about 7th century. And it's an incredibly balanced, beautiful sculpture of stone of the head of Buddha. And it is just perfect solitude, perfect tranquility. It's all there. So you have to come see it. Well, we've been discussing, among other things, the Compassion Council for the Dallas Arts District. I've been speaking with Amy Hoffland. She's the executive director of the Crow Collection of Asian Art. Their website, crowcollection.org. It was great meeting you, and I need you to come back. I'd love to. Thank you very much. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.